path of Dhamma practice is a path of opening. It's a path of opening our bodies. When we start in our practice, there's often a sense of the solidity of the body and the density of it. Through the power of observation, we begin to see more specific kinds of sensations, begin to discriminate and articulate different kinds of feelings in the body. As the observing power becomes stronger, often there's a dissolution of the form. So we can be sitting and feeling the body, but without any sense of shape or form. As we go deeper, we begin to feel it as a flow of energy. The energy becomes more refined and more subtle. So the path of our practice is an opening to these physical energies in deeper and clearer ways. It's also a path of opening our sense doors. It's like our sense perceptions become clearer. How we see and how we hear. You may have noticed at times that you may be sitting quite still and there's a sound and the sound feels as if it impacts the body in such an intense way. Because the perception of hearing has become so acute. It's a path of opening our emotions. As we proceed in practice, often there's an uncovering of deeper and more intense emotional states. Sometimes they're very beautiful, they're feelings of love and compassion in a way that's very sweet very refined. And sometimes it's the uncovering of very unpleasant emotions. Maybe there's a welling up of a huge amount of rage or anger or sadness or grief. It's all part of this uncovering process. It's a path of opening to deeper levels of silence. And in the couple of months that you've been here, I think you've observed at times different kinds of silence. Now at first, our mind is simply lost in thought most of the time. And as we practice, we may still be thinking most of the time, but there's some thread of awareness. We know that that's happening. And as practice goes on, maybe we're a little more with the breath and thoughts are more in the background. And the background thoughts get more subtle. Maybe for a moment or two, they actually stop. You really experience a silence of mind. The practice of Dhamma is not a reaching out for anything. It's not a process of acquisition. Rather, it's a settling back and an opening 
to what is there, an opening to what is true. It's a realization of our essential nature, of what is always there. What keeps us closed in this process of opening, what keeps us closed to this experience of the Dhamma, are deeply conditioned fears. There are certain kinds of fear in the mind which are very strongly habituated. We have fear of pain. This is a strong habit for us. We have fear of certain emotional or psychological states. There's often fear of impermanence in some very basic level. Mind is afraid of change or afraid of the unknown. There's fear of death. The problem for us is that all of these things are actually part of who we are. Pain and difficult emotions and impermanence and the unknown and death. This is part of what is true. And so as long as there is fear of these things, we stay fragmented. We stay cut off from a part of ourselves. On this journey of opening, what happens is that we come to boundaries. We come to the edges of what we're willing to be with, of what we're comfortable with. And it's just at these edges, these boundaries, that these deep-rooted fears begin to reveal themselves. Working with the fear at these points in our practice is an essential part of the work that we do. It's an essential part of this opening. We begin to see very clearly what it is that limits us. We begin to see the possibility of going beyond our limits. We begin to look very directly and very closely at the nature of fear itself, so that we understand it. The Dhamma is the totality of our lives. It's the totality of who we are. And there's one profound implication of this understanding, which is that everything is workable. Every situation, every experience, is workable. Nothing is outside of the practice. When we come to these boundaries or places of limitation, we come to the edges of what we're willing to be with, and different fears begin to manifest. And we look at the fear, begin to see that fear is rooted in aversion. As we've mentioned before, aversion has two kinds, it's two types. There's the aggressive form of aversion, which is anger, 
And there's the retreating form of aversion, which is fear. This fear is a contraction, it's a pulling back, it's a withdrawal, it's a collapsing inwards. We also begin to see that fear conditions other unwholesome mind states. Fear of losing what we have of losing what we like, conditions attachment. Fear of experiencing what we don't want, conditions resistance in the mind. Chuang Tzu, the ancient Taoist sage, said little fears cause anxiety and big fears cause panic. We can see how this is operating in our minds. So what are some of the things, what are the areas in which fear is strongly conditioned? Some way the most obvious, the most present domain of experience where fear begins to show itself is fear of pain. fear of discomfort. The mind has been strongly conditioned to avoid unpleasantness. We don't like feeling painful sensations. There's often an unwillingness to be uncomfortable. It's interesting to observe what a strong limitation this is in our lives. When we begin making life choices using comfort as a measure, it's a tremendous limit on what we can do. For a long time before I went to practice in Burma, I'd been hearing all these gruesome stories and there was a real fear in my mind about what the conditions were going to be like and the level of discomfort involved. And I actually postponed going for years. And I had made all these rationalizations in my mind. Well, I don't really have to go. And finally, after years of this, and I was finally became more and more conscious of just what it was that was actually limiting me. Got up my courage and applied and went. The day before going, I had this very vivid dream that I arrived in Burma and entered the monastery and they took my zafu away. <laughs> and I said, can't use zafus here. <laughs> and there was such a feeling of anxiety in the dream. We can begin to observe this fear of discomfort even while practicing and sitting in this relatively comfortable place. Observe carefully what's happening as you're sitting and there are just those slight shifts of position. What is that about? 
very often it's an unmindful or an unconscious unwillingness to be uncomfortable. And it's so much of a habit that we hardly notice. But each of the, each of the little shifts is just a way of masking a certain kind of dukkha, masking a certain kind of pain. It's very helpful at times to make a kind of resolve of no movement. It could be for an hour, it could be for half an hour, it could be for ten minutes, it could be for one minute. However you feel, however much you feel the mind can handle, but just to take some time of really opening to those subtle kinds of discomfort, the subtle kinds of pain that often we avoid. There also can be a fear of sleepiness. Just as sleepiness comes up in the practice, what I noticed in my own practice is that at first there was this tremendous dislike of that feeling. I didn't like sitting feeling sleepy and so got involved in this huge struggle to keep it away. And the mind interpreted this as right effort. But actually it wasn't right effort. Actually it was a fear of feeling that, a fear of that discomfort. And when I finally saw that and could simply bring mindfulness to that feeling itself with a sense of acceptance, not with a sense of struggle, it was quite amazing in to see how much of the energy that I had been using to struggle against it was now freed up and the sleepiness actually came and went much quicker from letting go of that fear, from letting go of that struggle. There's a fear with respect to physical pain in terms of anticipation. of what the pain will be like. Very often it's not the fear of an actual sensation, that in the moment we're able to be with it, we can feel it, but the mind starts anticipating, well, what is this pain going to be like in an hour? I'll never be able to endure it. And we get afraid and we move and we shift and we avoid. Working with pain in the practice, working with painful feelings is extremely valuable because it has the power to bring us right to the edge, right to the boundary of what we're willing to be with. Now we can tell ourselves, and we do very often, well, I really want to play the edge. But we often tell ourselves that safely back from the edge. (laughs) Yeah, the edge, that's great. (laughs) Well, pain has this amazing ability to bring us right there, you know, just to be with it and to see what happens. 
as we open to it, and it takes a lot of skill to learn how to open to pain without struggle, without forcing, without resistance. It really is a softening of the mind and an opening of the mind. It's a very gentle space that's required. We learn a tremendous amount about the nature of these elements, of these physical elements. I don't know if you went outside today at all. It was amazing. I mean, the wind was really strong and howling. And just got a sense of the power of nature, the power of physical elements. These are the same elements that are in our body. There are powerful forces here. We can begin to really appreciate and develop a respect for their power, for their intensity. If we're willing to open as we reach our edge, as we reach our boundary. If we can do this, if we can go beyond at least a certain level of the fear we have about pain, Not only do we understand in a deeper way the nature of these elements, exactly what the fire element is, how intense can burning get, how intense can pressure or heaviness. As we go beyond, at least to some extent, the fear in our mind, we also begin to see very clearly the three characteristics manifest in these elements. We see the changing nature so clearly. And we see the selfless nature so clearly. That these physical sensations are following their own laws. They're not subject to our will. They're not subject to our wish. We can't say, wind, stop howling. We can't say pain, go away. As long as the conditions are there, so these elements will manifest. So there's a very direct, intimate insight into the characteristics as we open to the pain, as we overcome the fear. the intensity itself becomes interesting. Sometime during the 1984 course with Upandita, he got it in his head that I should really experience pain and understand it. (laughs) And so he just had me sitting with this unbearable, to sit for until the pain came and then to go through it. And I was very intense, but it was also interesting. It was just interesting to see, okay, what does unbearable mean? You know, I'd be sitting and it was unbearable. (laughs) It was so intense and I knew that if I moved a quarter of an inch, the pain would disappear. And just to see, to to take interest in what is that about? What, What is pain? What makes it painful? What's our reaction to it? But we also have to take some care because there's a kind of pain 
that actually is a signal of damage. You know, if you put your hand in fire and it starts to, to hurt, you don't just want to say pain, pain, pain. <laughs> you know, there's, there are some kinds of pain which are very clear signal, and other kinds of pain which actually are kind of, you could call it Dhamma pain. It takes some skill and it takes some practice to differentiate these two. And if you approach it with a kind of sensitivity and just a slow experimentation, you'll know. You'll know when you can actually be with it and go through the intensity of it. And when this is not good for the body, something is actually being strained or damaged. In working with pain in this way and exploring the edge of what we're willing to be with and understanding the fear that arises, you know, the pulling back from it, and then the softening and opening into it, it's extremely helpful to look at the attitudes of the mind with which we're doing it. Because the attitudes of the mind, if they're imbalanced or incorrect, then they're unhelpful for the practice. As an example, if we're being with the pain and we're really playing that edge, but we're doing it with the attitude of wanting to get rid of it, that's not a real opening. Really, we're bringing to that pain, then, a subtle quality of aversion. We often do this in terms of a misinterpretation of certain kinds of sensation. Very common in the practice, as we're sitting, we begin to feel certain sensations and we interpret them as being blockages. Because we have an image of what we'd like, of this free flow of light, tingling, flowing energy, And so anything that's not that becomes a block. And as soon as we bring the concept of block to a particular sensation, already we're bringing in the attitude, this is not okay, I need to do something about it. Subtle kind of aversion. Instead of simply seeing it as the manifestation of particular elements. Maybe it's hard, maybe it's pressure, maybe it's tightness. Our practice is always simply to see what is there. Not to try to change it, not to make anything special happen, just to see what's present. Working with pain and really seeing how fear comes up as we work with it. Also fear is very strongly conditioned with certain emotions and psychological states. There's a certain deep fear of not being accepted, not being liked. And we all, especially through practice, become aware of our shadow side, of all the negative parts, the dark parts, 
the shadow side of our minds. If there's non-acceptance of these parts, if there's fear of these parts of our mind, this leads to a tremendous sense of insecurity, leads to a certain kind of fear of rejection. Because there's always that fear that other people will find out how we actually are. And we know, and if we can't accept it, if we don't have a loving attitude towards those parts of the mind, we project our own fear, our own non-acceptance onto how other people view us. This leads to tremendous kind of insecurity. Because we keep looking then for validity, for acceptance in other people's eyes. It's interesting to see the consequences of this fear of insecurity fear of rejection, fear of non-acceptance, which comes from our own fear of the shadow side of things. It leads to the creation of all kinds of self-images. We create images that we think are acceptable. When we identify with those self-images, we become imprisoned by those self-images. And we can become attached to certain roles in terms of our relationships with other people. Conditioned by this fear of insecurity, this fear of non-acceptance. This fear also leads, in a very interesting way, to the judging mind. You may have noticed in the course of practice how prevalent the judging mind is. There's a judgment about everything. What color socks your neighbor is wearing? The mind will take anything to make a judgment about. Notice the feeling that comes when the mind is judging. There's a certain solidification of self in the identification with that judgment. It's like we're creating this sense of self and we're supporting it and we're strengthening it every time we make a judgment. But out of that sense of self comes the feeling of separation, comes the feeling of alienation, But in some way, it makes us feel secure. And this is its seductive power. Because of a fear of insecurity, because of fear of non-acceptance. So we feed this judging part of the mind in an attempt to make this self something solid. Fear of insecurity, an unwillingness to feel that, 
to be with it, also leads to attachments to people, to situations. There's a fear of being alone. And how much of our lives you know, happens, happens out of this fear. Pascal, of whom I know very little, had one, maybe many, wonderful lines. <laughs> this is Pascal, courtesy of Newsweek. They were quoting, I think it was some kind of book reviewer, where he said, most of the problems in the world would be solved people could learn to sit quietly in a room. Now, how much of what happens in the world happens out of that fear of being alone, of being quiet? So we do so much to cover that. We get involved in so many activities. We confuse, to a very significant extent, wanting and loving out of this fear of being alone. There's a fear of renunciation, a fear of letting go. Now that's another edge for us. We come just to that place of renouncing something that we're quite habituated to, that we're very used to. The thought of renouncing it can generate a tremendous amount of fear. Years ago in India, when I first was beginning my practice, I had this idea that, even though I was not a monk, that I would shave my head. At that time, I had a lot of hair. (laughs) It was amazing, the mind trip, that it just seemed like the most significant event in the history of the world, (laughs) mystery of my world. It just loomed so large, and there was so much fear about it until five seconds after it was done. And then it was nothing. Didn't miss it at all, which was good training. But it's just interesting to watch these attachments that we have. Some of them, to our rational mind, quite ridiculous and still emotionally. You know, they're very powerful for us. And just to watch what happens when we contemplate a renunciation. You know, and to see how, if we don't understand the fear, if we don't know how to go beyond it, if we don't know how to work with it, So then it limits us, limits what we're willing to do. So a big part of our practice is opening to these feelings and emotional, psychological states that we're afraid of. Opening to the feeling of insecurity, that that's okay to feel. Opening to feelings of being alone. 
opening to feelings of unworthiness, whatever the feeling may be, to understand that there is an option to being afraid. That we can actually come to that place of boundary, soften, we can open, we can relax into it, we can see the essential, essentially empty nature of all these phenomena. This fear of pain, this fear of certain emotional and psychological states, this fear of impermanence, the fear of death. Now, for as long as we hold on to this mind and body as being self, as being I, the consequence of that attachment is fear as it begins to age, as it grows old, as it gets sick. Because of that strong identification we have with it as being who we are, as being self. As the practice goes on, we begin to see more and more clearly the momentariness of phenomena. We begin to see how every aspect of our experience in the mind, in the body, in the world outside is arising and vanishing moment to moment. This is the great gift of developing a strong observing power. As we just keep practicing, keep refining our ability to observe, we see things with greater and greater clarity. We see the momentariness that there is nothing which is lasting. We begin to observe our own patterns of trying to hold on, trying to manipulate, trying to control. We often do this in meditation practice itself when we try to hold on to past experience and try to recreate it. Now we have some insight, we have a certain perspective, we see things in a certain new way, and then that becomes it. My mind is digressing into a little story. <laughs> it's really interesting. <laughs> Trungpa Rinpoche once visited Werner Erhardt, you know, who developed the S training. And, and there was a lot of value in it, uh, although it also, I think, had certain limitations. But the sort of the jargon, of the, of the workshop was getting it. And when Trungpa Rinpoche met uh, Werner Erhardt and they had this dialogue, Trungpa's remark was, it is an it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the same thing. That's the same insight we need to bring to our practice. Because it often seems like it. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, I got it. 
And if we hold on to an insight or perspective or an experience, no matter how wonderful, and try to recreate it, what that's like is dragging a corpse around. It's something that has come and gone is dead. We don't need to drag these corpses around because there's continual re-emergence in every moment. It's like new experience arising in each moment. If we can let go of our control, let go of our fear of what is unknown. There's one tremendously interesting balance that we need to discover in practice. And it's the balance between heroic effort and surrender. And it can take a while to figure that out because it's easy to get caught on one side or the other, on having the effort become efforting, or having the surrender become spacing out. It's the effort to be present, not the effort to get something. It's the effort simply to be present and then surrendering to the Dhamma, surrendering to what's there, surrendering to the unfolding, not holding on, not trying to recreate. And so to take a look, as our perception of impermanence becomes stronger and we see the momentariness, we see the dissolution of experience moment after moment, often fear will arise about this because we're seeking for some security, we're seeking for some way to hold on, to create some sense of self in it all. To see that fear and then to open. This fear of impermanence, this fear of the unknown, this fear of death. I just came across one of the suttas of the Buddha in which he talked about the fear of death. It seems a Brahmin someone from the Brahmin caste, came to him one day. This Brahmin said, I maintain and hold the view that there is no mortal who does not fear death and is not afraid of it. And the Buddha replied, There is indeed, Brahmin, such a mortal who fears death and is afraid of it, but there is also a mortal who has no fear of death and is not afraid of it. And he goes on to explain in the sutta who it is that fears death and who it is that doesn't fear death. He said, those people who are craving sense pleasures, thirsting after sense pleasures, attached to sense pleasures, as they become gravely ill, as they're dying, the thought of losing these sense pleasures, 
creates a tremendous disturbance and agitation in the mind of actually giving up what one has spent one's whole life thirsting after. The thought of losing them creates this agitation. Such a person is one who is afraid of death, who fears death. He said those people who have a strong attachment to the body, the strong love of the body, not not simply a caring for it, but the strong attachment or a craving for the body, thirsting for the body, at the time of death, such a person's mind will become very agitated. Such a person will fear death. Those people who have performed many unwholesome acts, acts of cruelty, acts based on hatred, on anger, at the time of death, reflecting on those acts, thinking of the consequences of those acts, such a person is afraid of death, such a person fears death. The Buddha said, the person who remains confused or uncertain or perplexed about the Dhamma, about what is true, at the time of death, that confusion, that perplexity, that not understanding the nature of things causes agitation in the mind. Such a person is one who fears death. The Buddha went on to say, those who do not fear death, those who are not afraid of death, are those who do not cultivate this strong thirsting or craving or attachment for sense pleasures. So at the time of death, there is an easy letting go. People who are not so strongly attached to the body, are not thirsting after the body, craving after the body, the time of death, there's no fear. People who have cultivated in their lives wholesome acts, generous acts, loving acts, the time of death, there is no fear. And people who have come to understanding about the Dhamma, people who have clarity about the nature of things, at the time of death, there is no fear. This fear of pain, this fear of certain emotional and psychological states, fear of insecurity, this fear of impermanence, fear of change, fear of the unknown, this fear of death, these are deeply conditioned in us, deeply conditioned in the mind. The question then is, how do we work with them? The beauty of the retreat, the beauty of the practice, is it brings us very close, it brings us to the edge of experience where these fears begin to show themselves. They they begin to become conscious for us. So how do we work? How do we begin to disentangle from the fear? The first way is to recognize it clearly as it arises. And to recognize it with a feeling of acceptance, using the great Vipassana mantra, it's okay. 
It's okay. Let the fear come. Let me feel it. Let me open to it. Let me see what it's about. Learning not to be afraid of the feeling of fear. That it is actually okay to feel it. And we can begin to examine and investigate exactly what this constellation of fear is. Some thoughts in the mind, some images in the mind, some sensations in the body, some certain emotional coloration. If we can bring an acceptance to it, it's possible then to discover its nature. If we're rejecting it, if we're afraid of the fear, there's no possibility of understanding it. An image that has helped me a lot in working with fear is of imagining how we would relate to a frightened child. Suppose you came across a child who was really very afraid of something. How would you relate to the child? You wouldn't be feeding the fear. And most likely you wouldn't be condemning it. There would be the acknowledgement and just a caring attitude, being there for it. And in that field of acceptance, in that field of care, of love, the acceptance of the fear itself allows the deconditioning process. The first way of working with fear is recognizing it and learning a certain quality of acceptance and and loving care. So there's a gentleness in the mind. Second way of working with fear is to bring some discriminating wisdom. We take a certain measure of the situation. because There are some fears which are actually wholesome. It's being afraid, not in an averse way, but really with wisdom of situations that are fearful. If you see a big sign someplace, danger, radiation, you don't go charging in. You have an understanding, yes, this is dangerous. Okay, I'll stay away. So the first thing to do in a fearful situation is really to see what's the nature of this situation. What is the appropriate response? Mostly the kinds of fears that arise in our practice are not ones of radiation. They're fears which very often are rooted in aversion and are unwholesome. And so then we begin to see, okay, do we have the strength, do we have the willingness to actually be with it and act in spite of the fear. I'll tell you my favorite fear story, which some of you have heard before. It was when I was first teaching at Naropa Institute in Colorado. And I've always had this fear of singing, you know, in public. (laughs) 
for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this class called the Natural Voice, you know, kind of a New Age singing class. So I thought, this is just for me. And so I signed up for the class, and it was great. We had all these group exercises, and I was singing away very happily. Until one day we had this guest teacher come in. She was a teacher of Balkan folk singing. <laughs> and when she had to stand in a circle and go around one by one, she would sing a note, and then we'd have to sing it back to her. <laughs> I knew <laughs> there was trouble ahead. <laughs> and I'm getting more and more nervous, you know, as she's coming closer to me. Finally, it gets to my turn. She sings this note. <laughs> I sing something back. It wasn't even in the ballpark. I mean, it wasn't even close. She was really determined. <laughs> so she sings her note again. I try again. And I was really embarrassed. But she wouldn't give up. <laughs> Finally, the regular teacher happened to walk in and kind of saw what was happening and, you know, Note by note, he kind of got me, led me up to the right pitch. When I finally hit it, everybody started applauding. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an interesting experience for me in the sense of the fear was very real. I mean, this was a deeply conditioned inhibition. And there was both the fear and the embarrassment in the situation, but also a willingness just to do it anyway. And it was a great lesson for me in seeing that the fear doesn't have to limit us. It doesn't mean that it will go away necessarily, but that in many situations we can act in spite of the fear. This is especially possible if we become aware, if we're mindful. Yes, the fear is there. We feel it and that it's okay that it's there. So we're not fighting. We're not afraid of it. It's just a particular state and that it does not have to limit our actions. In our practice, and we can really play with this edge of what we're willing to be with. As I mentioned a little earlier, sometimes take a vow, a non-moving vow. If you can do it for an hour, fine. I'm going to sit here for an hour and not move, let me die. Right? It's, it's just that kind of determination. See what happens. Work with the fear that comes up. Maybe you feel an hour is too long. Do it for half an hour. It doesn't matter. Play with the edge of less sleep. You know, how many times I've noticed in my practice at night when I wouldn't be tired, but the thought would come, I better go to sleep because I might be tired tomorrow. You know, and it was just a, it's a fear. It's a fear of being tired. Just, the beauty of a retreat is that basically you have no other responsibilities except to explore. That's what this whole environment is about, of exploring the edges, exploring the boundaries, exploring the fears. It's also knowing when to surrender, when it's time to actually pull back a little bit, when the fear may be too much and you feel there's not the energy, there's not the willingness, there's not the strength to deal with it. Fine, there'll be another time. There'll be many other times. 
Someone once asked the Dalai Lama how to work with deep fears. He said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine whether there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry about it. If you can't do anything, then there's also no need to worry. working with fear, accepting it, really looking at it, feeling the fear itself, becoming mindful of it. Then taking a measure of the situation and see, well, when is it time to act anyway? When is it time to retreat? A third way of working with fear in the practice is letting go of expectations and models. The practice is just to be with what's happening. When there are times of difficulty, when there are times of real struggle, that in some way can be the most illuminating time. Because that sense of difficulty or that sense of struggle is precisely about reaching some boundary, reaching some edge of what we're willing to be with. Why do we struggle? Because there's something going on that we don't want to feel, that we don't want to be with, that we don't want to accept. It might be pain, it might be discomfort, it might be boredom, it might be restlessness. It might be some intense energy in the body, sometimes emotion. If there's struggle, let that be a signal. This is exactly the time to step back and take a look. Okay, what's happening? Is there a fear there? that's preventing me from opening. One of the greatest helps in working with fear is our ability to surrender to the Dhamma. This process of mind and body, this process of unfolding, of opening, has a wisdom in it that is far greater than our own particular thinking intelligence. Can we surrender to it? Can we bring our attention just to the arising moment and surrender? Let the process unfold. Investigating in a deep way the essentially empty nature of fear. It is just a mind state. It comes together because of certain conditions. The conditions change, the fear changes. One of the dangers of misunderstanding is that we begin to create a concept of ourselves as being a fearful person. We create this image, this all of this fear, and somehow I have to work through it all. 
and I'll spend the next 20 years in therapy uncovering all the conditions and no need for all that. If we can observe it carefully and see that the fear itself, like everything else, is an arising and passing phenomena, that it does not belong to anyone. In that moment of clear seeing, in that moment of acceptance, it loses a tremendous amount of its power. And the last way of working with fear is through the great strength of mind, of trust, and of love. Because the stronger these qualities are in us, they dispel the power of fear. Can we trust? Can we surrender to the Dhamma? Can we trust Buddha nature? Can we trust the power of the Sangha, the, pa- the power of our practice together? This is what the three refuges mean. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. It provides a tremendous strength for us as we explore, as we explore the deepest parts of our nature, as we come to the edge, come to the boundaries, come to the fears. It's this trust and this love which actually enables us to open. So let's sit together for a few minutes, please. Most of us are frightened of dying because we don't know what it means to live. We don't know how to live, therefore we don't know how to die. As long as we are frightened of life, we shall be frightened of death. The person who is not frightened of life is not frightened of being completely insecure for they understand that inwardly and psychologically there is no security. When there is no security, there is an endless movement, and then life and death are the same. The person who lives without conflict, who lives with beauty and love, is not frightened of death. If you die to everything you know, including your family, your memory, everything you have felt, and death is a purification, a rejuvenating process. To find out actually what takes place when you die, you must die. You must die not physically, but psychologically, inwardly. Die to the things you have cherished and to the things you are bitter about. You have died to one of your pleasures, the smallest or the greatest, naturally, without any enforcement or argument, then you will know what it means to die. To die is to have a mind that is completely empty of itself, empty of its daily longings, pleasures and agonies. When there is death, there is something totally new. Freedom from the known is death, and then you are living. 